Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And today I'm going to revisit sodium bicarbonate. And the reason is that I've gotten a lot of questions and comments based on the episode I did called The Evils of Sodium Bicarbonate, which you can check out, uh, asking if the BICAR ICU trial that was published in The Lancet changes my mind or affects my opinion about sodium bicarbonate. So let me just review that that episode was specifically about the evils of sodium bicarbonate when used to treat pure lactic acidosis. So my opinion on that is certainly no secret to anyone who's listened to that episode or even looked at the title. I strongly believe that the evidence would support not using sodium bicarbonate to treat a pure lactic acidosis. I think it's actually harmful. It's certainly not beneficial, and yet it's used incredibly widely still for that purpose. So this is a battle that really still is ongoing and that we should all be taking part in to discourage the use of bicarb for pure lactic acidosis. So then the question arises, does the bicarb ICU trial change my opinion on that? So the answer, I'll just tell you the punchline up front, is definitely not. But I thought it might be interesting to talk a little about the Bicar ICU trial and why it does not change my opinion, and uh, also just give some more information for folks who maybe ask that question. So you might be in a situation where someone is trying to get you to use bicarb to treat a lactic acidosis, and they may say, didn't you see that trial in the Lancet? It Doesn't that mean you should do it? And so I want you to be able to counter that argument. So let's talk about the trial a little bit. I'll tell you my thoughts on it, and then I'll just review a few things that I think are important key points when you're thinking about why not to use sodium bicarbonate for pure lactic acidosis. So the Bicar ICU trial was published in The Lancet in July of this year, 2018. Samir Jaber, whose name I'm sure I did not pronounce right and I apologize, um, is the first author, long list of authors, all for the Bicar ICU study group, and this was done in France. It was an RCT with 389 patients who were in the intensive care unit who had pH, blood pH levels of 7.2 or less, and they were within 48 hours of ICU admission. 
They were randomized to get either sodium bicarbonate at 4.2% as an infusion until their pH was greater than 7.3, or the control group that did not get the sodium bicarbonate infusion. They looked at a primary outcome that was actually a composite outcome of either death by day 28 or at least one organ failure by day 7. About 60% of the patients were medical and 40% surgical, and the majority, just barely, a little over 50%, had a diagnosis of sepsis. A fair amount, about 20%, had hemorrhagic shock as their primary diagnosis, and about 10% had had cardiac arrest. The vast majority, more than 80%, were on pressors and intubated. And their median bicarb level for both groups was around 13 We'll talk about this more in a sec, but let me just step away from the trial itself just to say that it's still so common for people to say, oh, the patient's bicarb is low, therefore I should give bicarb. And this is, it's such a tricky situation because often when things are low, we do want to replace them. If the potassium is low, if the calcium is low, we want to replace it. But numbers can be deceiving. Think about diabetic ketoacidosis when someone is hyperkalemic. And we may think, oh my goodness, you know, I need to get that K out. I need to get rid of that K somehow. But in reality, they're going to need potassium. They're actually, their total body potassium is actually way low. It's just been shifted. So that number can be a little deceiving. Similarly, you might have somebody with severe heart failure with an ejection fraction of 10 or 15% who comes in with a low blood pressure of maybe 80 over 50. And sometimes we think, oh my goodness, I need to get that blood pressure up. 80 over 50 is too low, where actually 80 over 50 might be a great blood pressure for that person. You have to take everything into account and you don't want numbers themselves to be an automatic trigger. And in this case, similarly to those situations, the Bicarb being low does not mean we necessarily should replace the bicarb. It may, depending on why it's low, but if it's low because of a lactic acidosis, it turns out that the lactate will be converted back into bicarb by the liver. What we need to worry about is not the low bicarbonate. We need to worry about why the patient has a lactic acidosis and fix that problem, not just replace the bicarb. All right, I said I was just going to make a quick comment and could easily get carried away down that. We'll come back to the arguments against using it in a second, but let's just finish up with the trial. So let's look at the results. So there was no difference in the primary outcome between the bicarb group and the control group. So 66% versus 71% with a p-value of 0.24, so not significant. But there was a pre-specified group with acute kidney injury with AKIN scores of between 2 and 3. There were 182 of these patients. And in that group, the primary outcome did occur less frequently in the bicarbonate group with 70% in the bicarb group compared to 82% in the control group, and that p-value was just significant. It was 0.0462, so just under 0.05. Now, there's been some interesting debate over whether 0.05 is the right p-value to use in general, but for now, we'll say, okay, it did make the cut for being statistically significant. The other thing they found was that the need for renal replacement therapy was lower in the bicarbonate group than in the control group, 35% versus 52%, and that was extremely significant with a p-value less than 0.001 actually less than 0.0001, and in the pre-specified group with kidney injury, the need for dialysis was 51% versus 73% with a p-value of 0.002. So those are definitely significant. Now, there were some weaknesses of this trial. So it was, it was underpowered. They overestimated the difference that they were trying to plan for, and so they ended up underpowered. 
And, of course, when you now cut down and look at this subgroup with acute kidney injury, even less power because you have fewer patients. So that's a problem, but it doesn't mean that this trial isn't useful at all. We just want to take that into account and be careful before we use this to change practice. I do think there's some interesting things we can learn from this, however. So the most important thing is to address, for me, right up front, that this does not have any bearing on the question of whether we should be using bicarb for lactic acidosis. Because first of all, we don't know in this group how many of these patients had lactic acidosis compared to non-anion gap acidosis compared to acidosis related to their renal dysfunction. And we certainly don't know subgroups with those types of metabolic acidosis and how they did specifically. I think if we did know that, we would find that people with a pure lactic acidosis at the very least didn't do any better with bicarb and maybe did worse. So what we do know, because other studies would suggest it, is that non-anion gap metabolic acidoses are fine to use bicarb and maybe even help. For example, if you get a bunch of normal saline, you will develop a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. This is one of the downsides of using normal saline and why we've moved away from using normal saline for resuscitation in many circumstances. So we know you'll get that metabolic acidosis, that non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, that you can treat with bicarb because essentially the cause of that is that you lose bicarb or are not able to regenerate it eventually you will be able to. And so if you just leave someone alone, they will fix that by themselves, but it would hasten it. It would speed that up to give them bicarb, and that's reasonable. Another obvious answer is someone who has a metabolic acidosis because they're dumping bicarb, either from a renal tubular acidosis or let's say they have an enterocutaneous fistula where they're dumping out bicarb-rich fluid from their small intestine. Replacing that bicarb is a no-brainer. That is an obvious choice. And, of course, someone in complete renal failure, in absolute end-stage renal failure, who needs dialysis, that's part of what dialysis does, is to give bicarb. There's bicarbonate in the dialysate fluid, and that is how the bicarb does the job of the kidneys, which normally would be dealing with that acidosis. So some, there's no question that someone on dialysis is getting bicarb. That's just part of what it is. And, in fact, that reminds me that another two kind of issues with the trial are that 24% of the patients in the control group actually got bicarb, even after randomization, and 52% of patients in the control group end up being dialyzed. And remember, being dialyzed is like getting bicarb. So you, you actually had a lot of crossover here, and that will affect, of course, the results of the trial. But back to what I was saying, it is there are definitely times where bicarb is an appropriate treatment for acidosis. However, those are not lactic or pure lactic acidoses. So this trial would suggest that for patients with kidney injury, which would suggest that at least part of their acidosis is from renal insufficiency, is from their kidney's inability to regenerate bicarb, replacing that bicarb may be helpful. Now, again, underpowered, and it was a subgroup, and so a little hard to say for sure. At the very least, I think this is definitely hypothesis generating and would be the fuel for future trials. But I also think it's probably reasonable, especially if you're being pushed to use bicarb anyway, to think about using it in your patients who have metabolic acidoses and renal insufficiency or renal failure who aren't yet being dialyzed. Now, the other thing that this trial showed is that, as I said, they were less likely to get dialysis. So it did, it did stave off dialysis by giving bicarb. Now, of course, that's really a no-brainer. One of the main criteria for dialysis is acidosis. So if you 
increase the pH, you are going to have less acidosis. You are therefore going to need to dialyze less. That's obvious. There are good things and bad things potentially about that. The obvious good things are that dialysis has its own risks. You have to put in a line. You have to pump the blood out and filter and put it back. So there's risks associated with dialysis. And if you can avoid it, maybe that's good. On the other hand, there is some thought out there, though this hasn't really borne out well in the literature to this point, but that of someone who is going to need dialysis, it might be helpful to start it early. Again, there's a lot of controversy over whether that's true, but if it is true, then obviously putting it off to the only then eventually need it might be a downside. Regardless, someone who gets bicarb is going to be less likely to have a profound acidosis is therefore going to be less likely to need to be dialyzed. That's pretty obvious. And so somebody who has renal failure and an acidosis or renal insufficiency and an acidosis Maybe it's a combined lactic and uh, renal-induced acidosis, someone who's septic with renal failure uh, before they are on CVVH or before they need dialysis. You might want to think about bicarb in those people. Although, again, I don't think you'd be wrong to say, I'm not convinced yet this trial doesn't really push me to change my practice. I think waiting for more evidence would be totally reasonable. Let's talk about some other significant things that I think are really important to think about from this trial. So one is they used a bicarb infusion not bicarb amp pushes. By far the most common thing that I see when people get bicarb is push. They push an amp or more of bicarb. That is not what was tested in this trial. And what they did here was an infusion. A. B, they used an infusion of 4.2% bicarb. Now that's half the concentration of the usual amp, which is 8.4%. They used 4.2%. Why is that significant? So first of all, When you push an amp of 8.4% bicarbonate, that's an incredibly hypertonic solution. That's equivalent to about 1,000 milliequivalents per liter. So if you had a bag of saline, that's 154 milliequivalents per liter. An amp of bicarb is 1,000. So it's very hypertonic. What that's going to do is draw a ton of volume, about 300 or so cc's, into the intravascular space and dump it on the heart all at once. That might be helpful. So the reason that if someone is coding or very hypotensive and they get bicarb that sometimes their pressure does go up everybody thinks that what that's happening is that we're now helping the pressors work by resolving the acidosis turns out actually giving a bolus of saline does the same thing so it's not the bicarb it has nothing to do with the ph it's the bolus effect from that hypertonic solution but on the flip side if somebody has a weak heart or a weak right heart and you dump a huge 300 cc giant bolus and that's not 300 cc's given over any amount of time it's all at once so it's just a huge all at once bolus you dump that in the right heart you could push a heart over into failure so you want to think about it that way but the point is that you definitely can't look at this trial and say oh pushing amps of bicarb is helpful i I learned that from the bicarb icu trial no they did not test that they didn't use that concentration and they did not Give it as a bolus. Now, there's some interesting things they also looked at. So they looked at uh, the effect on potassium. So they did find that the potassium levels were lower in the bicarb group. Now, that's significant to think about. You want to look at the details because we use bicarb a lot for hyperkalemia. But again, they didn't use 8.4% bicarb. They used 4.2%. What do we know about bicarb? So Josh Farkas did a really nice piece on this, and I highly recommend you take a look at that. It's Palmcrit, his look at this, and he talks in there about the effect on potassium. And so what he talks about, which is exactly right, is that high concentrated hypertonic solutions like 8.4% bicarb do 
something called cause solute drag. So what does that mean? It means that it's going to pull water out of cells, and solute, including potassium, is going to come with that water. And so you actually, the hypertonicity is going to cause a little bit of increase in potassium. On the other hand, when you raise the pH, you cause a shift of potassium into cells, and so that will lower it. So 8.4% bicarb actually is pretty neutral in its effect on potassium. That solute drag and the raise in pH causes a net effect that's pretty much nothing. You don't really lower potassium when you give 8.4% bicarb. It doesn't really have much effect. On the other hand, if you give isotonic bicarb, so you may have taken three amps of bicarb, three amps of that 8.4% bicarb, you put it in a liter of D5W, and you get isotonic bicarb. When you give that, you're giving a lot of volume, and you're raising the pH, those two things together both will reduce the potassium. Raising the pH will cause the potassium to shift into cells. Giving volume will dilute the potassium. And so giving isotonic bicarb will definitely lower potassium. So we now know from this trial, it sounds like it looks like 4.2% bicarb will also somewhat lower potassium. So that's good to know, again, given as an infusion. There were some side effects, however, so patients who got the bicarb were more likely to end up with an alkalosis, hypernatremia, and hypocalcemia, and those are not insignificant. Let's look at each one for a second. Alkalosis. So we often think, oh, acidosis is so bad, I don't really care about alkalosis, doesn't sound as bad. Alkalosis has major downsides, one of which, of course, is is the hypocalcemia, which impairs cardiac function, but also alkalosis probably maybe more significantly, especially in the surgical population, reduces oxygen delivery to tissue. So now you've got tissue that is at risk. Maybe it was just operated on, or maybe you've had a stroke or a cardiac infarct. Maybe you've had a ischemic area somewhere else. You really need oxygen delivery to that tissue when you cause a left shift by causing an alkalosis, you reduce the oxygen delivery. The hemoglobin holds onto it tighter because of the left ship of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, and you don't deliver as much oxygen. So that's a big deal. We often say here in our surgical ICUs, we'd rather have a patient at 735 than 745, and it's for that reason. We'd rather have them get more oxygen delivered to tissues than not hypernatremia. So I won't get into all the potential downsides of hypernatremia, but obviously if extreme enough can cause a lot of problems and you're giving a lot of sodium when you give sodium bicarbonate. And then the hypocalcemia, as I mentioned, is related to the alkalosis and is going to cause impaired cardiac function, impaired cardiac contractility. And that's a very significant thing. Again, when you're talking about delivery of oxygen to tissues, when you're talking about cardiac function. All right. So We've talked about the study, and I think it's pretty clear that we can take some interesting points from this. We can take maybe some hypothesis-generating ideas. We maybe could say that with our patients with renal insufficiency and acidosis, we have a little more support if we if we want to give some bicarb, though if we're going to do it, we need to do it as an infusion and not as 8.4%. So again, that isotonic bicarb, especially if they're hyperkalemic, is one way to do it. This trial used 4.2%. You could try that. So something to think about, but again, not a slam dunk, and I think that it's it certainly needs more support before we start doing that wholesale. However, this trial does not support does not lend any support to the use of bicarbonate for lactic acidosis, for pure lactic acidosis, and certainly not the way we do it traditionally, which is by pushing amps of 
of 8.4% bicarb. So now let's revisit some of the reasons why that is a bad idea. So we already talked about some of them that we saw in this trial, alkalosis, hypernatremia, hypocalcemia. But the others, uh, so we mentioned the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. It turns out, and I mentioned this in the other episode, uh, in the evils of sodium bicarbonate episode, that not only does that oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve shift to the left, but it stays left shifted even after the pH has returned to where it was before. So there's some longer lasting effect that happens. It's a little unclear why. Maybe it's related to 2,3-BPG, but there's a reason why that's a problem and will stay a problem for longer. You're going to have less oxygen delivery for tissues, not just in the immediate time period, but for a little longer. Now, I think you will find that the people most resistant to this idea of not using bicarb for lactic acidosis are going to be your cardiac surgeons. And it's interesting because this is re- this idea is really strongly held, at least here and People really believe that lactic acidosis, you should give bicarb because any acidosis is going to be bad for any patient, but especially for a post-cardiac surgery patient. So let's talk about this for a second. First of all, this is one of those mental dilemmas, these heuristics that it's almost impossible to, to defeat. And the reason is because it's such a setup. You have acidosis and badness, and they almost always go together. People who are acidotic do badly, and it's so easy to see that association as causation. And you'll hear people all the time say, I had a patient die from acidosis. This patient is dying because they're so acidotic. Acidosis kills. But here's the thing. People who are really acidotic do die, but not from the acidosis. They die because if they are supremely acidotic, something really bad is going on. Someone with a pH of 6.9, something is causing that which is going to kill them. It's not the pH that's going to kill them. It's the underlying problem. But it's so hard to convince people of that because what do they see in their practice? They see acidosis, they see death, and they think those two go together. On top of that, we are taught all the time, people in med school are taught, are still taught, I was certainly taught, that acidosis causes arrhythmias and decreased cardiac output and decreased stroke volume, decreased contractility, increased rates of elevated pulmonary pressures. And that is really what the cardiac surgeons worry about. So they have these patients, they just operated on their heart. They're worried about the heart, especially the right heart. And now they're saying they're worried, oh, if if the pH is low, if they're acidotic, that pulmonary pressure is going to go up and that will cause the right heart to fail. But again, All of this is really not, it doesn't bear out when you look at it. It is patients who who are very acidotic, for example, with severe ARDS, when they get acidotic, don't have increased pulmonary pressures, they don't have decreased contractility, they don't have decreased cardiac output. This is all, it just doesn't bear out. Now, I will give you that those patients have a respiratory acidosis, and so is it possible that it's different with metabolic acidosis? It is possible, but we don't have any reason necessarily to think that. At the same time, we know, like I said before, that oxygen delivery is worse when we give bicarb and create an alkalosis, and it's better in acidosis, so wouldn't we want for those fresh post-op hearts for them to have as much oxygen delivery to that heart, to that tissue as possible, and if we want that, we should actually want patients to be a little acidotic. Another thing you'll hear all the time is that pressors don't work in an acidotic environment. So it is true that in the test tube, 
the beta receptors will invaginate to a certain extent when the environment gets acidotic, but that doesn't translate into clinical reality. Patients who are on pressors, who are hypotensive despite being on pressors, don't do any better when they get bicarb than they do when they just get a saline bolus. There is no added effect of raising that pH. Pressors work even in an acidotic environment. And when someone is really, really acidotic and really hypotensive despite being on pressors, it's not the acidosis. The patient who is maxed out on levofed, that's norepinephrine, epinephrine, vasopressin, and they're still hypotensive, it's not because of the acidosis. It's because they've got some major, major problems and they're probably going to die and that's not going to matter whether you give them bicarb or not. If you give them bicarb and their pressure goes up a little, it's not because the pressors started working all of a sudden. It's because you just gave them a bolus of fluid and they are a little bit fluid responsive at the moment. All right, I'm not going to go too much into all the reasons why I don't like bicarb or don't think it's supported for lactic acidosis. Again, you can check out the episode called The Evils of Sodium Bicarbonate, and there's some good references there too. The point here is that the Bicar ICU trial does not change that at all. It does not argue for using bicarb to treat pure lactic acidosis. So don't let anybody talk you into that. There are some downsides of the trial that we've discussed. It is suggestive of potentially the benefit of bicarb infusion at 4.2% for patients with renal insufficiency that is contributing to their metabolic acidosis or causing it, but that remains to be seen. So that's my update on bicarb. I still call it evil for the treatment of pure lactic acidosis. Avoid it. Fight the fight. Don't let people talk you into it. Don't let them tell you that it's going to make the heart not work or the patients are going to die or have higher rates of arrhythmias or have higher rates of pulmonary hypertension. These things are not true. The evidence doesn't back them up. And we want to make sure we try to educate those around us. Of course, you want to do it in a respectful way. If you're an intern or a medical student, I'm not suggesting that you get up in the face of the attending cardiac surgeon and demand that they stop using bicarb. But again, where you can, when you can, in a respectful way, try to educate, try to help people see that there is not a benefit of sodium bicarbonate for the treatment of pure lactic acidosis for these other purposes great. Use it to replace lost bicarb when it is actually being lost out of the body, either from an RTA or from an intercutaneous fistula. Use it for non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, such as a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. And you can think about using it for a patient with renal insufficiency uh, and a metabolic acidosis. So all of this is good stuff. I'm really curious to hear from others. What did you think about this trial? How are you using this? Are you fighting this fight? And if so, are you being successful? Um, what do you think? Let us know. Go to ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave a comment. We can all learn. There's been some great comments lately, some of them adding and even correcting some of the stuff um, that my guests and I have said, which is great. It's like ongoing, constant peer review. So I highly encourage you to leave comments and read the comments when you're listening to episodes, because you may find someone who's pointed something out that maybe we got slightly wrong or adding something that really adds to what we've done, which is fantastic. Also, you can uh, join the mailing list and you can uh, get a hold of me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, please go to iTunes, leave a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. Even if you've already left a comment and a rating, you can do it again. And again, that just helps. 
If you would like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. That really makes a difference, and we appreciate it. If you prefer to make either a one-time donation or you want to make intermittent donations that you control, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's PayPal, P-A-Y-P-A-L dot M, like Mary E, slash A-C-C-R-A-C, paypal.me slash ACRAC. If you prefer to do it that way, you can do it that way as well. Very, very much appreciated. Big, big thank yous, as always, to those of you who are already patrons or have made donations, and, of course, to Brian Park for making the great outlines that you'll see popping up on some of the episodes on the show notes. All right. That is it for today. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving if you live in the United States. And if you live elsewhere and you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you have something similar where you get a chance to give thanks to those people in your life who really matter to you and who you are thankful for. Remember, expressing gratitude actually is incredibly, incredibly beneficial for your own well-being. So I encourage you to take that extra little bit of time whenever you can to express thanks to those who you want to say thank you to or who have done something for you. And so I will say amongst many things that I'm grateful for in my life, I am grateful to all of you listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your wonderful comments and for taking the time to support the show, to think about the show, to add your wisdom to the things that I learn and that others can learn from listening and reading your comments and everything you're doing out there for your patients, your colleagues, and your institutions throughout the world. I'm so grateful and feel so lucky to have even this little bit of contact with you via this podcast. All right. Thank you so much for the ACRAC podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.